growing up in the 70s, we thought computers were evil because they were mainframes and computers as depicted in the media were evil. There was HAL, 9000, 2001 A Space Odyssey. You had episodes of Star Trek where the computers were Landrew on the original series, stuff like that. And so all my exposure to computers was either they're evil or they're incompetent. Welcome to the Hey Good Game podcast, where we chat with the creators of your favorite games that you secretly play in the cracks of your day. All right. Well, we just got done interviewing Jim Bumgardner, who operates the Crazy Dad website. And it's got a really cool journey, just a lot of different things we discussed. But what were some of your takeaways, Joseph? When I saw the dot com originally, I'd wondered where it came from. And of all the things that I imagined, it wasn't screensavers, <laughs> right? I thought that was really unique start to crazydad.com. I was struck by his persistent thread through a number of different roles and things that he's done where if you were to quote him, he would say, huh, I wonder how, or that's an interesting problem. and then. He would describe the way that he went about solving it, reverse engineering something from how would I do it? And if I can't figure it out, I'm going to find people to teach me, whether it's a book or whatever it ends up being. And that kind of rigorous curiosity is something that I really enjoy, something that I look to cultivate in my kids and the people I work with, and something that's so present in Jim. How about yourself? You know, first of all, I was just really interested in how he's gone about generating all these puzzles and some of the lessons that he's learned over time. I think he said he's got 52 puzzle generators, basically, and he minimized it briefly of like, well, a lot of them are just Sudoku variants. But having spent a little bit of time doing this, there's a lot going on there. And I think a lot that he can take credit for. And lot that I just want to quiz him on now. And I hope he does come out with the book that he was talking about. But also, I think there's this theme I've noticed from a lot of people that are really into programming, often are also really into music, or often really into other things. I think that's just really curious and was cool to talk through it and see the progression in Jim's life. But for now, check out our interview with Jim. Today, we're thrilled to speak with Jim Bumgardner of Crazy Dad. His site has many great games like Sudoku and Kakuro, and he currently works as a senior engineer at the California Office of Data and Innovation. Jim, we're thrilled you're here. Hi. Bumgardner, by the way, means ass farmer in German. <laughs> really? No, it does not. It means <laughs> that used to be my opening joke when I was teaching. No, it means tree grower. Orchard or orchards person. It's hilarious. Oh, that's fascinating. Even given the the area that where you are now, <laughs> right in a in a growers region. Yes, and also given that I grow trees of data for a living. Yeah, I've always found the name to be highly relevant to what I. Do. There you go. That's fantastic. And there's a famous pitcher that pitched down the way of the first name Madison. Madison Bumgardner, sure, who hails from uh, Bumtown in, in the Carolinas, which is where my ancestors also come from. It's the region of the country that has a ton of Bumgardner. Bumtown. It's the local <laughs> name for 
It's not what you think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe it is. I don't know. <laughs> Jim, we always like to ask when we get started here, what are you playing these days? What's what's your favorite game? Oh, that's a good question. Currently, my favorite game is called YouTube. <laughs> and it is actually uh, Hot Thai Kitchen. This chef named Pai who lives in uh, Vancouver and makes Thai food. And I've also been watching a lot of chess lately. There's a streamer I like named Anna Cramling, and I've been watching her games the last few days. Her mom has been uh, commenting, who's the grandmaster, has been commenting her games in uh, Stockholm. I've been doing that. I'm not a huge gamer gamer. I do a lot of puzzles. Every day I do the connections and the spelling bee and the New York Times crossword just every day. And I do a lot of logic puzzles just over the course of administering my website and also talking to people on my Discord community. There's a lot of puzzle constructors on my Discord community and they submit original puzzles. I do those. The last console game I played was Zelda Tears of the Kingdom a few months ago, but I only do that like once a year. I'll do like a game. I don't particularly like point and shoot type games, never have. And I have a lot of other interests. You know, I do uh, cooking, obviously, is one, and music is a big one. So I'm not doing a, a ton of games. Do you go to a lot of concerts then, Jim? Yeah, making music. My background is I grew up playing piano and writing music in high school. And then I went to Cal Arts and studied music composition there back in the early 80s, very long time ago. And at that time, I was doing modular synthesis. They had two Buchla synthesizer studios there, and I was doing electroacoustic music with uh, synthesizers and reel-to-reel tape, where we would manipulate the sounds on quarter-inch magnetic tape and then cut it with razor blades and scotch tape it together and make tape loops and stuff like that, which was how we did sampling back then. And it was really cool. And I still play. I, I'm in an amateur band and I play and I have a modular synthesizer in this room that's sitting right there out of frame, your rec system. Actually, that's kind of gets into, I don't know if you're curious, it gets into how I got into computing in general, because growing up in the 70s, we thought computers were evil because they were mainframes and computers as depicted in the media were evil. There was HAL 9000, right? 2001 A Space Odyssey. You had movie, you had like episodes of Star Trek where the computers were Landrew on the original series, stuff like that. And so all my exposure to computers was either they're evil or they're incompetent. You know, they're causing too many zeros or too few zeros to appear on people's paychecks. And that was it. So I had a very low opinion of computers going into the 80s, which was basically the beginning of the well, the late 70s, 80s, beginning of the personal computer revolution. But then I got really into this really technical thing, which was modular synthesis. And a modular synthesizer is basically an analog computer. And I developed some facility with that. And as a result of that, I got interested in using computers to create music. And that was sort of my way in. There was this composer, John Cage, who many of your listeners probably only know from one piece, which is 433, which is the piece where the musician does not play any music for four minutes. But he also did a lot of music that involved chance operations and what's called aleatoric music, where the decisions of the performer were controlled by chance rather than the choices of the composer. So there would be coins or dice involved, that kind of thing. He specifically 
like to use the I Ching, which had a system of selecting a random number from one to 64. And you could do it with three pennies or you could do it with yarrow stalks. And depending on which method you use, you got different statistics or different probabilities of getting different numbers. So I got interested in that and started working on a piece for synthesizer and tape that used a very large number of random numbers to make the piece. And I needed a way to produce them. I didn't know at the time you could buy books of random numbers, which was a thing <laughs> back then. So I ended up buying like a little Timex Sinclair computer at Kmart, which is 100 bucks. And I wrote a little basic program that simulated the I Ching Yarrowstock method and generated a ton of numbers and used it to make the piece. That was how it all started. And at that point, I was hooked. <laughs> and I just started doing more and more programming and less and less music. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like a real similar path that visual artists are having with NFTs, where you're writing code and at the minting action, right? The uh -huh. code generates the visual. But you were a few decades ahead. Yes, and very early on, by the time I had graduated CalArts, I had this really strong opinion, and definitely a minority opinion at the time, that computers were fully capable of producing good music. That the only thing that was preventing it from happening was a little more memory, a little more speed, and sufficient attention on the part of the programmer. And there were, and continue to be, people who believe that humans have something special that will be forever out of reach of computers. Roger Penrose had a book called The Emperor's New Mind that's on that topic. And I still don't understand his reasoning, but it was something about, something about quantum physics and somehow humans are special because of quantum physics. Or, and I just think it's bullshit. I think ultimately the computers will win. <laughs> And we can already see that what is happening is that detectable differences between computer-generated art and human-generated art of various kinds are shrinking. And I believe they will continue to shrink. And there's a parallel in puzzles and games, because when I got into puzzles, I was doing computer-assisted puzzle generation, right? And there are definitely uh, people in the puzzle community that are aren't fans of computer-generated puzzles. There are whole classes of puzzles that are, for the most part, the economy is driven by computer-generated puzzles. And there are whole classes of puzzles where it is not. And I believe, and still believe, that you can create high-quality puzzles with computers, and we can continue to make them better and better if we apply sufficient attention to the software we're making. So it's that analogy is super interesting to me makes me think about two things, really. One is your comment that there's a lot of people who think that from a music generation standpoint, the computers are never going to catch up. And I think I just heard Rick Rubin on a podcast recently, who's definitely of that mindset. And I think maybe something along the lines of there's an emotional feeling that, you know, we as humans have that like goes into how we think about writing music. And you know, on the puzzle side, though, I, I think I'm largely of your mindset that computer generated puzzles are are just as good is with the creator of this app called Sudoku Pad. And there's kind of this whole community around that. And you might be familiar with this where, you know, there's a lot of puzzle creators that create some uh, pretty unique 
puzzles. Definitely. And it did give me a deeper appreciation for some of the unique characteristics of, of some of those generated puzzles. But it, it does kind of cause a question for me, like, at what point will the computers be able to create those unique elements of the new puzzles in truly creative ways? I think we're broaching up against that now in a lot of different ways, but I'm I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, with both music and puzzles, we're not there yet, but they're getting better and better. And so, you know, obviously, anytime we identify an interesting puzzle, especially a, a Nicoli style puzzle, by which I mean a language independent logic puzzle, it's possible for a computer to construct one. I've encountered very few of those that I can't write a generator for relatively quickly. There's a couple that I struggle with, but that's me. That's not the problem. And, but yes, there is a creative thing that human constructors do that's wonderful. I'm thinking of Dave Miller, who has a site called thegriddle.net. He's a wonderful manual constructor. And I've asked him many times, by the way, to describe to me how he does what he does. And he's not very articulate at describe, but he makes great puzzles. And one of the cool things he does is that every puzzle We'll do like a series of, say, Slitherlings, but everyone has a slightly different rule set. So there's a lot of creativity in terms of mixing and matching different rules, introducing novel rules, and also introducing novel metaphors. Like he recently did a really cool puzzle on my Discord group that was called Leg Day that was based on the idea of covering a, f- a floor with your legs. Oh, that's not a lifting day because today was leg day. Yeah. <laughs> I'm feeling exactly, it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it was a really cool, very human idea that led to a very attainable logic rule that one could certainly do with a computer. And today, using the techniques that I have traditionally used to construct logic puzzles, I can't achieve that type of creative inspiration. But I think we're getting there. And I don't think it's far away. I think it's less than 100 years, certainly, where the gap is going to be uh, small enough that it'll be indistinguishable. You're viewing all the variables that would go into a game being selected by some human because backstory why. You're saying the computer would get to a point where it would have a distinct perspective and be able to create some set of alternate variables with a backstory of Z. Yeah. I did this because... And by the way, this isn't quite answering your question, but there are certain puzzle categories that are detainable today that just haven't been sufficiently explored with AI. One of them is verbal logic puzzles. What we used to call logic puzzles, and some people still call logic puzzles, which is the kind that appear in like supermarket magazines that involve groups of things. Like there's five Girl Scouts and they had a baking contest and They had five flavors of cupcakes and they were each wearing different colored sweaters, that puzzle. And you have to identify all the things. That puzzle already can be computer generated, but the only thing that's missing is word groups and scenario. But the word groups and the scenario today can be generated with AI. Yeah. All right, everyone, quick break. Attention game creators, have you ever thought about selling your game? At Hey Good Game, we're looking to acquire and steward some of the most popular and beloved games on the internet. Even if you're just curious, we offer a fast process to getting you an offer. Just provide some basic analytics and revenue details, and we'll quickly get back to you. If you move forward with us, we usually close within 14 days. Visit hey.gg and see how we can take your game to the next level together. And now, back to the show. I know we're 
talking about doing some AI conversations at the end. Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> but no, it's, it's really every conversation we had last year had NFTs in it, including the ones about wine. <laughs> right? Yeah. Not that it's bad at all, but I was going to grab us before we run there. Yeah, we can return to it. There's some more history to cover, too. Yeah. As a complete flyer, I understand that you might be the mayor of the North Pole. Oh, yes. Can you tell us more about that? Did a computer help you get that done? Oh, of course. Okay, so this is a very funny story. So back in 2010, there used to be a thing that many of us remember called Foursquare. And I think Foursquare still exists, but it has a different name now. And it was Dennis Crowley's startup in New York. And it was an app. And I'm just telling this for all the Zoomers out there. <laughs> we all remember it very well. So It was awesome. And it was awesome. Yeah, you would go to your local Starbucks and you would check in. And then if you checked in the most, you would become the mayor of the Starbucks. So it was kind of gamified location tracking. And you could also, if you had friends, you could see where they had recently checked in. And if you were at a big arena concert, you could check in and then you might see, oh my God, I know someone who's sitting up in the balcony over there or whatever. So it was very cool. And it was very cleverly designed and had a lot of fun features, badges. It was very highly gamified. So I was having breakfast with my wife one morning and I was just kind of idly wondering, I wonder if I could make myself the mayor of the North Pole. And so I went home and I checked to see if there was a North Pole and there was not a North Pole. But I saw that there you could introduce new locations. So and I figured out how the API works so I could do this programmatically. So I made a script where I could introduce a new location. And then I also found a way to introduce en masse locations that did not exist. For example, not a lot of people were checking into laundromats and dollar stores and things like that. So I used Yelp to find laundromats and dollar stores and created a database of those and then introduced a bunch of laundromats and dollar stores into Foursquare. That will come back. So I checked into the North Pole and made myself the mayor. And then I was like, okay, well, can I check into the Taj Mahal? Yes, I can. Can I check into the Statue of Liberty? Yes, I can. So over the course of a couple of days, I just wrote a script that checked into all these world landmarks. In like two days, I was the mayor of the Taj Mahal, Mount Rushmore, the Playboy Mansion, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Statue of Liberty, et cetera, et cetera. Which, by the way, I remember one of the employees at the Statue of Liberty was not happy about that. But anyway... Because usually the mayors of those places are were regular employees. And then I made another bot that checked into, I found all the Starbucks. And I just started checking. I made, I think it was an army. Uh, I called them Java monkeys. They checked in because I couldn't do it with one account. So I made a bunch of them. And I checked into all the Starbucks on Foursquare and made myself the mayor of like 200 Starbucks. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And that, by the way... <laughs> People don't like losing their mayorships of Starbucks. It's like no one cares about the Statue of Liberty. Well, except for that one guy. But if you're the, the mayor of your local Starbucks and you lose that, that hurts. That hurts. So I did that. And then, okay, so at the time, Martha Stewart still had a show. And Simon Cowell was still doing American Idol at the Kodak Theater. So I made a Martha Stewart account. And I made a script that would have her check into her studio in New York when the show was taping. And so people who attended the taping would naturally want to see who else was in the studio audience or be proud to check in. So they would check in on Foursquare and they would see, oh, Martha Stewart checked in. Where else has Martha Stewart been? And so they would look at her account and they would see that every day after taping her show, Martha Stewart goes to Queens and hits all the laundromats and dollar stores. 
<laughs> and <laughs> similarly, Simon Cowell, people would go to the Kodak Theater and check in at American Idol, and then they would see that Simon Cowell had checked in. Oh, well, where else has Simon Cowell been? Simon Cowell visited all the outlets of Hot Dog on a Stick <laughs> in Los Angeles, one by one, et cetera, et cetera. So I did this for about two weeks, and then I wrote a blog article about it because basically pointing out some security issues that Foursquare might want to fix because they were these are fixable things. If you have a single account and it's checking into the Taj Mahal and then 30 seconds later, it's checking into Mount Rushmore, that indicates that the person is traveling faster than the speed of sound, significantly faster than the speed of sound, right? So that can be detected and should be detected in my opinion, and flagged. So, and it also created some interesting problems because the problem with apps like Foursquare is that you can't, we still don't really have a system in place where you can trust that an online entity is at the location that they're reporting they are. Our GPS system does not have any kind of system built in to securely prove that you're at a location. So this is going to be an essential security flaw in any system like Foursquare. And yeah, there was a little piece published in the LA Times and Dennis Crowley was interviewed and then he commented on my blog and we had a nice conversation. He's a nice guy. I still follow him on threads at the moment. It was fun. It sounds fun. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> We're going to have to find the way the creative computer, this is <laughs> back to AI, <laughs> when the computer starts hacking you. I haven't had a lot of hacking adventures. I've yeah. done that about as much as I've, I've played console video games. But every now and then, <laughs> you know, something catches my eye and I go, oh, let's try that out. I don't know if you remember ICQ. I, you had a, a number and I figured out how to get vanity numbers on ICQs. I had a million for a while. That was fun. That's awesome. That's like my favorite coffee shop. They had accounts and I always wanted to get double zero. They wouldn't <laughs> give it to me. <laughs> exactly. One thing that all, all my juvenile hacking experiences, by juvenile, I mean when I was in my 40s, <laughs> have done is made me very conscious of the kinds of abuse that my puzzle website might get. And I think pretty good about keeping it, protecting it from various kinds of chicanery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a MasterCard commercial out right now that shows how their technology is protecting Major League Baseball all-star voting from being gamed by bots. And, and I saw that and I, I felt so seen because, you know, back in the day I was <laughs> trying to vote up during the Super Bowl who would be the fan favorite. It made an impact. Gamification in general is a really tough thing to do well, I think. And it's something I've mostly avoided on my puzzle website because of exactly this kind of problem. On the sites I've seen that do it, if the site is just remotely popular, it's very clear that they're it's being abused <laughs> in some way, especially if there's a top 10. You solved it in one second? Oh my gosh, yeah. How did you do that? Actually, I was talking to Bob Fuhrer the other day. I enjoyed hearing him on your podcast. It was a great episode. And we were talking about that. And he told me uh, this wonderful story about how they were working on the online KenCan. And they were building an anti-cheating mechanism that would detect, that understood the sort of logical way to solve the puzzle, would detect when people made logical leaps that were suspicious. And they were midway through doing this when he attended a, um, I'm probably telling this wrong, but when they attended a Ken Ken championship and he saw a championship solver 
And what the solver did was she looked at the puzzle for a couple minutes and then just wrote down all the numbers in order. Wow. She had solved it completely in her head. That's the problem is it's so hard to really accurately, I think, detect certain kinds of abuse in systems like that. So my solution has been to not gamify the site for the most part. I offer your elapsed time. You can gamify yourself, but I worry about doing things like leaderboards. Yeah, no, that's interesting. It's certainly something we're we're thinking about and it's always in the back of my mind of what do you do about that? But I think talking about crazy AI. We'll talk about AI later, <laughs> Joseph. <laughs> talking about crazy dad. Talking about crazy dad. <laughs> So it looks like you started the site maybe in the mid 2000s and uh, maybe for a lot of interesting reasons, but would love to hear your your take on that. What led to you starting the site? And yeah, tell us more about it. It seems kind of inevitable I would have started the site because of my the way I got started in computing was through music. And all the joy I was getting out of programming and continue to get was from recreational programming, of which I include music and basically programming for things that you enjoy. And for me, that was puzzles and math games and graphics and things like that. I remember in the 80s, I was a big fan of the columnist at Scientific American that took over for Martin Gardner, A.K. Dudney, had, a, had an article called Computer Recreations that took over. I think Gardner's article was Mathematical Recreations. And it was basically a recreational programming column. It was great. And I remember doing all those things. And then also, I would be interested in software that I could intuitively figure out how to make. So in the 80s, when I was teaching myself C, the C language, I would try to make popular apps of the era. So I made you know, modem communication software. I made a spreadsheet. I made a word processor and all those things. And then every few years, I would see something and I would say to myself, how do you do that? How does that even work? How does a computer chess program make a move? That seems just not intuitive to me at all. I don't know how I would do that with conventional programming techniques. So then I would get interested in that buy some books on the topic and figure it out. And so I wrote computer chess software. So this exactly the same thing happened with Sudoku in 2004, 2005. I think early 2005 that the Sudoku craze kind of hit the States. You know, it had already been going big in Britain for a year or two and where it had come from Japan. And I think so when it hit the States, I think the LA Times started running one and I'm in LA. And I got very interested. I was like, hmm, how would I write a program to make one of these? That's an interesting problem. And at that point, the internet existed. And there was tons of information online about how to do it. And there was an active community of people trying to make them, trying to make hard ones, analyzing them mathematically. And I participated in that community. And probably like you with Kakaro. And so at some point, I had a puzzle generator. And I made my puzzle generator output PDF files so I could print them out and solve them with a pencil. That's how I like to do it. And then I had several thousand PDF files and I didn't know what to do with them. And I also had a website called Crazy Dad that was for selling screensavers. And that business was very small and not that fun because of the customer support aspect of it. So I was like, okay, let's put the puzzles on the Crazy Dad site, see what happens. And they very rapidly kind of took over and the screensavers took a back seat. And in a few years, probably within five years, there were no more screensavers on the site and it was all puzzles. That's awesome. I love it. 
were all of the puzzles for a long period of time were they all PDF or did interactive players come into the mix? Yes. Early on or Yeah. When I started they were all PDFs. Actually, one of the good things I've done is I've maintained the history of the site. The interactives, I didn't start promoting interactives until 2014. So from 2005 to 2014 it was print only. And then there's just kind of a few major milestones for the site. So one was when I introduced the interactives. One was when did the interactives start, did usage of the interactives start to outpace usage of the printables? It's still quite close, by the way. I have my own like stats that on the site so I can just see real time how things are doing, which is just based on trawling my web logs. And at the moment, interactive is 52%, printables 47% as of today so and it's been that way for quite a while it's been but i think it started to it's only just a little bit more but they didn't cross until about around the time of the pandemic the reason i added the interactives was because i could see that the audience was changing the puzzle audience is kind of an interesting beast and when i started i was doing only printables i would say that my average user was probably in their mid-40s and was interested in brain health or had an aging parent and they were printing the puzzles for their parents. And that was sort of my audience. And I could see that over time, if I continued to market only to people that wanted them in print form, the traffic would decline over time because there was this obvious transition happening to digital. So that's what compelled me to add the interactives. But that was a challenge because the interactives are a little harder to monetize. And we should definitely talk about monetization because I've been through, that's been a journey. But one of the things I've noticed is that if you use a donation-based system, as I do, people are more likely to donate for a printable puzzle than for an interactive puzzle because the printable puzzle has weight and you can hold it in your hands. And so there's a psychological element to it of, I am paying for a physical product. And software, bits, feels ephemeral and cheap, just intuitively. Now, the amount of work it takes me to do one or the other is actually, is not reflected in that, <laughs> right? It actually is harder for me to make an interactive puzzle than a printable puzzle. But in terms of donations, the donation rate is definitely higher for printables. I have found ways over time to increase the donation rate for interactives. And I've done a lot of bucket testing, uh, trying out different things and, you know, very much a believer in empirical evidence. I don't just try things out and leaving them without measuring the result. And so I, I found ways to improve donations for interactives. And then the other thing I've done a lot of is extend out into different areas, you know, so book publishing is one, selling puzzles to newspapers is another. So I have a, a good relationship with the New York Times. They publish uh, the Star Battle puzzles I make Monday through Saturday in the print edition. And I've also sold puzzles to Andrews McMeal, which is a large syndication company in Kansas City. It used to be Universal Syndicate. So they carry my uh, Sudokus now. Uh, they switch suppliers, I believe. So the more I can kind of spread things out, kind of and create a virtuous feedback system where one thing funnels in, into another, I think it only helps. You may have noticed I have not mentioned advertising. I did notice, yes. I used to advertise. That used to be the main source of income for the site. And that went through a journey. Because when I started advertising, and this was in the early 2000s, Google was still in their don't be evil phase. 
And Google ads were really great back then because we had this awful banner ads and pop-up ads at the time that were everyone hated. And Google came along and said, hey, we're going to give you these, this nice little panel on the side. It's all text. It'll be highly relevant to the site you're on. You know, it's not going to just be selling you Viagra. And um, it's great. And I was like, yeah, I'll, take, I'll put one of those on the site. And it was great. They paid really well. The ads weren't super intrusive. And then over time, Google became the thing that they were originally proposing to not be. And that became problematic. So the income from the ads plummeted over time. The relevancy of the ads became problematic. And also, the site was targeted by bad actors. So for example, and I think this was a problem at that time, say around 2012 through 2018, any site that had PDF downloads, if you ran Google ads, you would get these ads that had a big green download button on it. And you would go to the page to get the PDF and you'd see this bit and you're, uh, imagine you're a 70 year old person who's, who's working on your brain health. It's very confusing. You see a big green download button, you hit it, and then you get some browser plugin that installs some malware on your computer and it was nasty. And so that became increasingly problematic. And what I was finding was as I got better at asking for donations, the donation money was going up and the advertising money was going down. And so I eventually just said, yeah, let's just stop advertising altogether. It'll eliminate the headaches. So I did. And that was around five or six years ago. I got rid of the Google ads. There was an improvement in the site experience. It was immense. It just looked and felt great to not have pages cluttered with ads. I was able to mention that the site was ad-free and my donation, please. So the donations picked up to cover the loss in ad revenue. So in terms of income, I would say it was probably a net zero, but I much prefer it this way for both my mental health and the experience of my users. It's not for everybody, obviously, but that's how I prefer to operate now. Several times a week, I get unsolicited emails from advertising companies that want to help me monetize my website. And they all so go do we. Yeah, they all go in the trash. <laughs> or I'll write occasionally if I'm feeling spicy, I'll, I'll send them a little rant and then it goes in the trash. But um, <laughs> I'm just curious, hearing kind of what your main frustrations were with the evolution, if you will, of the ad ecosystem. Have you A-B tested since then or tried to work with any providers that might be able to restrict ads? Or Not since then. It's a challenge because once you go off ads, it's very hard to go back on them. Sure. Right? I never want to do anything that's going to cause a mass exodus from my site. And I would worry at this point that, that introducing ads, even in a bucket testing situation, might do so. I do a lot of bucket testing nonetheless, especially the pandemic year. I had the time to do it and I was doing a lot. And prior to dropping ads, I also experimented with a lot of third-party ad networks. I think I tried. I think they approached me and then I tried them out and I was like, eh, okay, there's a slight improvement, but it's probably not worth the effort. And I've also experimented with advertising my site which at the time I was running ads, that seemed to me like a really bad idea. Like if I could make more by advertising on Google and the principal source of income was running ads on the site, it just seemed to me that there was a flaw in that reasoning that would ultimately lead to Google losing money and that Google would have to basically make sure that their ad engine worked in such a way that that, that didn't work because it essentially amounts to a kind of arbitrage scheme. 
that works against their benefit. But that's just my intuition. I'm not an economist. But so for the most part, I avoided advertising when I was running ads. And I still don't do a lot of it. I, I think organic, if you are lucky enough to be able to get good organic traffic, that's obviously the way to go. I haven't tried advertising since then. I can't imagine it would be much better simply because the traffic to my site is flat, it has been flat for a very long time. I've had to do things to keep it flat, to keep it from sinking. Adding interactive puzzles was one of those things. Changing the way that I ask for money is one of those things. One of the things I A-B tested in the pandemic year was, was introducing cartoon animal pictures in my donation, please. That actually had a measurable benefit. So if, if you load one of my pages repeatedly, you'll see that there's a lot of different random donation messages and there's like different styles. There's the funny joke with the animal picture that, you know, there's like 50 of them. There's the very sincere, heartfelt plea to support the website, et cetera, et cetera. And which is truly sincere. And I do believe everything I write, but I feel like I do need to hit all the possible emotional vectors that are available and see what lads. And I have done testing to see which ones are the most effective. And it's not super conclusive. I think ultimately some people are, you know, because the thing is, by the time someone donates, they've probably seen hundreds of these messages and you don't know which one's really affected them. So, Well, Jim, I, I want to pepper you with a lot more questions on the monetization. But before I even broach <laughs> that, you mentioned something about like the uh, emotional pleas. And I, I wouldn't call this a plea, but like I found it really interesting, like some of the communities that you maybe were hoping to get the, the puzzles into the hands of, especially the printed puzzles. Could you tell us maybe a little bit more about just like who you had in mind to be able to print the puzzles? And Oh, yeah. Getting puzzles into newspapers, I think, is a really good thing to do. You had a conversation with Bob Fuhrer about this, and that was clearly related to his success with Ken Ken, was getting them in the New York Times in particular at that time. And at the time he got it into the New York Times, the print edition of the New York Times was still the main way people were consuming it. So in general, getting puzzles into newspapers, whether it be their online website or their print edition, is a good thing to be able to pull off. And it's hard to do. It's very hard, I think, to go in through the front door and get that to happen. So he was very lucky that Will Shorts lived down the street. I was going to say, he literally went through the front door. <laughs> yes. He went through the correct front door. Yeah. <laughs> I got very lucky with the times. And also, I got very lucky that I was friends with Bob Fuhrer. I'll tell you that story in a second. But um, so in the pandemic year, as you know, was a good year for puzzle websites because we were all stuck at home baking sourdough bread and watching Netflix and chilling <laughs> and doing puzzles, right? Not all at the same time, I hope. And so the newspapers felt it and the Times, New York Times decided that this would be a good time to expand their puzzle offerings. Because at that time, they were pretty much only doing the crosswords and Ken Ken, and I think that was about it. So, so Will Shorts was working on a full half-page puzzle section that would have new puzzles. And at that time, um, just coincidentally, he happened to be addicted to a puzzle called Star Battle. And I was the main supplier of computer-generated Star Battle at that time. And those were the ones he was addicted to. He was going to my site and doing my puzzles, and he was addicted to them. So that really helped. So he had already published some Star Battles in the Christmas Puzzle Mania puzzle supplement that the Times does the previous year. And so he was definitely into them. He didn't like the name because it has nothing to do with stars or battles. So he published them under the name To Not Touch, which is actually a, a good name that describes the mechanic of the puzzle, essentially. Two objects can't touch. And so he contacted me just out of the blue 
and said, hey, do you want to run Puzzles of the Times? And I was like, yes, please. <laughs> I would love to, right. run, to run Puzzles of the Times. How many do you want? It turned out fortuitously that Will Shorts was addicted to Star Battle during the pandemic year. He had gotten into it a few months earlier. He had published them in the Times Puzzle Mania section, some hand-constructed ones that were quite nice. And he was doing the computer-generated ones on my site. And the reason I was publishing them was because a random person had asked for them. And often when I introduce a new puzzle, it's because someone asks for it. And it was someone in Europe. And at that point, the puzzle was still relatively new. And it was uh, was not under trademark protection. It had a generic name. And I looked at the puzzle and I was like, this is a great puzzle. It really is. It's what I call a Goldilocks puzzle. And what I mean by a Goldilocks puzzle is that it has a really good balance of simplicity to tactical complexity in that you can describe the rules in a sentence, basically two sentences at most, but you don't solve it with just one strategy. There's a lot of different strategies you can apply to it. Sudoku works that way. The rules are extremely simple, but as you know, there are tons of different strategies you can use to solve it. There's you know, block row interactions, X-wing, you know, coloring, all these different kinds of things you can do. And Star Battle is the same way. There's a lot of different strategies. So it's a very rich puzzle, what I call a Goldilocks puzzle. And I started publishing it because I could see that it was not well known yet, and it would be a good puzzle to kind of get in on the ground floor on. So that turned out to be a good move. And I had been publishing it for maybe three years when the pandemic hit, and, and I got lucky. So the Times is still publishing them in the print edition. And that has been very good for the site. And it is now on most days, it is the most popular puzzle on the site. And that's interesting because prior to the pandemic, the most popular puzzle on my site by far was Sudoku. But now Star Battle and Sudoku, I would say it's just a, Star Battle has a slight edge over Sudoku on my site. That's fascinating. Okie dokie. A quick break. Are you a fan of games that challenge your mind and sharpen your skills? Dive into the world of Hey Good Game, where brainy fun meets creativity. Like Sudoku, but need a bigger challenge? Check out Kokoro Conquest. It's a fun test of logic and math skills. Then, get ready for Crosswordle. It's a matchup of Crossword and Wordle, a new take on word puzzles that will keep you guessing and engaged. You'll find those games and others at hey.gg. And now, back to the show. So can you tell us how you met Bob Pure? My initial interaction with him was pretty funny, which was I started publishing a, I was aware of Ken Ken, and I was like, oh, I've got to get some of these on my site. And so I started publishing a Ken Ken-like puzzle, and I called them Kenny's. And I would say within a week and a half, I mean, very quickly, I got an email from Bob Fuhrer, <laughs> or maybe Bob Fuhrer's lawyer. That said, look, we got a trademark on this. Are you sure you want to be using this name? Ken Ken, maybe you could use a different name. And I was like, no problem, Bob. And I changed the name to Inkies, which does not have the word Ken in it. And they're published as Inkies to this day. And so if you Google Ken Ken today, just Ken Ken, if you Google printable Ken Ken, it might be different. But if you Google Ken Ken, you get Bob Fuhrer's site. You get Play Ken Ken, which is a USA today's site. You get the Wikipedia article on Ken Ken. And then you get Crazy Dad. So I got in early enough, I guess I was lucky enough to get into those that I still get a lot of people solving them. And I think the reason why it's as, it's as highly ranked as it is is simply because I'm giving them away, which is the case with all my puzzles. 
a few years later, I'm a member of this organization in LA called uh, Spec LA, which is sort of a salon that meets monthly, and it's a bunch of makers and nerds and artists and creative people, and, and we meet and we do demos for each other. It's very loosely modeled after the Royal Society. So someone, one of our members knew Bob and invited him to, to demo. And, and so I was like, great. Hey, hi, Bob. I'm Jim. Remember when I used the name Kenny's and he sent me a cease and desist? And I, and I tried to be very friendly. And, and, and he's a great guy. So we, we hit it off. And so I've, I've kept in touch with him over the years. And by the way, I very much enjoy hearing from other puzzle constructors and talking to puzzle constructors. There's a lot of them on my um, on the Crazy Dead Discord, and it's a good place to talk about puzzle construction. And I'm I'm not shy about sharing algorithms and things like that. I don't think being secretive is a benefit. I think ultimately it hurts everyone holding those kinds of secrets. So I enjoy talking to Bob, and he's he's an amazing resource. He's been in the toy industry forever, and he has a lot of great contacts. And it's 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 very fruitful to talk to him. And so, the pandemic year. I made a point of, because I had free time, of just reaching out to all my puzzle contacts and checking in on them and seeing how they're doing. And, and then, so I had a conversation with Bob right after I had had a conversation with Will Shorts. And I mentioned I'd like to get in more papers. A few days later, I got an email from Bob. Hey, I was over at Will Shorts's house and we were having dinner with the CEO of Andrews McNeil. And we were playing ping pong with Will and talking about you. Were your ears burning? <laughs> So that was great. And so it ultimately led to a really nice relationship with Andrews McNeil and supplying Sudoku puzzles to them. So the moral of the story, if you are a person who is a puzzle purveyor, is reach out to other puzzle purveyors. They are not just your competition. For sure. From cease and desist to syndicated. Yes. There is. <laughs> That's how that works. The trick is don't be an asshole. Right. Ultimately, that will carry you a long way. Obviously. Yeah, I assume that's true for a lot of different industries. You know, in the last industry I was in, super friendly with all my competitors except for one. And they were, it's because they were assholes, as you say. <laughs> yeah, it happens. I, there's a few that I've reached out to that are just not, just don't want to engage at all. And that's okay. You know, I respect that. You've got some patents that are also US and or EU. Well, the patents are from when I worked in the... Um, interactive TV industry, which was I did for quite a few years in the 90s and early 2000s uh, on and off. I had a brief but significant experience where I left that company and co-founded a, um, a dot com called The Palace, which was uh, an early avatar chat system. And that eventually was a victim of the dot com bust. And then I went back into interactive TV. So in general, I would say that most of the people that are making money from puzzles are not puzzle constructors or are not making money from the puzzles they construct. So Will Shorts is a puzzle constructor, but he's not. most of his money is not coming from puzzles that he makes personally. And he's probably the closest to a puzzle constructor that's making a lot of money from puzzles. Most puzzle constructors are selling individual puzzles, and they're not making it, and they're doing it because they love it. And that's a great thing. And that's exactly how my music works. I do it because I love it. I don't do it because my band's going to get $100 from the bar owner and that we're going to split five ways. You know. So have personally found making money in puzzles to be a much, much tougher nut to crack than making money doing the things that I can make money on easily. People are much more willing to pay me to do other things that I also know how to do that I just don't particularly like doing. And we have a word for that, and it's called a day job. So like many puzzle people, I have a day job, and I don't make enough from puzzles 
to where I can retire from the day job completely. I had a little hint of that in the pandemic year because I was essentially had a few months of forced retirement. And during that year, I was able to double the puzzle income. And it seemed like I could probably keep going with that. But I didn't trust it because the pandemic year was an unusual year for puzzles in general. And there was higher demand. And once the the emergency subsided, the demand for the puzzles also subsided. So it was hard to treat that as typical. Having said that, I would very much like to be doing puzzles full time. And I occasionally look for people that are looking for someone like me who has my specific skill set. It's hard to find. There's not a lot of people looking for looking for a gym out there. And for example, I would think if I were running Dell Penny Press, maybe I want to hire someone like me. But maybe they, maybe they already have 10 people like me already and, and, and they probably have more than they need. So and it's not like they're doing a lot of innovation. Right. I would think this might be a good window to be looking into innovations and puzzles because of the rise of generative AI. And it's certainly a good time for people that already use computers for puzzle construction to be looking at how they can expand their offerings and make more sophisticated puzzles and also language-dependent puzzles, which were formerly out of the reach of computer-aided construction. Yeah, and we're a year in, eh, a little over. Oh yeah, we're st it's still in its infancy. To having public access to some of these large language models and all the layering that goes on top. And there's been, what, like four, depending upon what platform you're looking at, notable releases in that year that completely, I don't want to say earthquake, I'll say earthquake. I mean, the, the plates are moving under what the foundation of not only puzzles, but everything else it's very concerning and scary, but also exciting at the same time. And I'm reminded of years ago, I read, it's probably early 90s, I read a book by Cliff Pickover, who had a series of fun books about nerdy stuff back then. And I think he was an IBM fellow. He, was a, he taught classes somewhere and he had a, a thought experiment he would do with his students where he would say, imagine, if you will, Imagine that everyone in the world has a soda can sized computer that has practically infinite memory and infinite speed. What would the implications of that be? It's a really interesting thought experiment to be doing in the early 90s. And of course, now we're almost there. I'm holding up my smartphone, which is smaller than a soda can, and it's fast enough and has enough memory that we can begin to see what the impl implications of that are. I would say if you're thinking about the puzzle industry, imagine what the implications are of having an inexhaustible supply of extremely high quality New York Times level crossword puzzles would be. You know, the Times, I do the New York Times crossword puzzle every day. Not every day is a winner. I would say maybe one out of every two weeks is a really good one. But imagine you have an inexhaustible supply of those. What does that mean? I don't know. And the only thing I can do to compare it to is to look at Sudoku, because Sudoku started from the beginning as essentially a puzzle that we have an infinite supply of. And the main difference is they are valued much, much less. A crossword is worth to the constructor hundred, at least $100, 150 depending on who picks it up, maybe more. And a Sudoku is worth at most, I would say, a dollar, and in many cases, far less. So that implies to me that it's not looking good for puzzle constructors <laughs> in the future, unless they're the ones controlling the funnel. 
basically. So, but it's an interesting, obviously it's not just puzzles. It's everything. It's everything. It's everything. We're, what we're going to see, it feels like, is a collapse of the economy. We already talk about being in a post-capitalistic society, but a post-capitalistic society really seems like what's coming. And you're absolutely right to compare it to an earthquake. It's the big one. So, yeah, relatively big. But then we build after it. Early on, you started with, we shouldn't be afraid of computers, though. How does that square? Well... I definitely can hold two contrary opinions in my brain at the same time, as most of us can. Yeah. I think it's scary, and I think we're due for a lot of change. I'm not saying that change shouldn't happen. I don't particularly like capitalism, but it causes a lot of feelings in me. And one of the biggest ones I think we're all feeling is stress. It's scary. And to some extent, I think other things have been scary for people. The automobile is probably scary for people. And it will absolutely, absolutely cause changes. I think it's kind of ridiculous to predict what future careers our babies are going to have because they're not going to be the jobs we have now, that's for sure. They'll be doing different things, just as we are. The careers that all three of us have did not exist when we were children. The guys I play tennis with who are lawyers will stop and like, they'll go like, what do you do? <laughs> I was like, you're retired. I was going to ask you that question. So I did. And I assumed that it was read books. And over dinner after tennis recently, I asked one of these fine gentlemen what books he was reading. And he said, no, I found YouTube. And he's like, I don't read books anymore. It's like, oh, that's amazing. We wanted all of our kids to like be astronauts, right? That was the thing when I was growing up, be an astronaut. And now my kids are like, I want to be a YouTube star and I want to tell them to be an astronaut. Which of these is smart to do is the question one of my friends posed recently in his newsletter. And I was like, dang, there's like 49 astronauts. <laughs> there's a lot of YouTube stars. Lawyer is probably still a growth profession. Ah, with AI? Yeah. It's going to be harder and harder to get in. That may be true. Hopefully, it'll improve misjudgments, I would hope. But if classical professions you want your child to be, where I grew up in the East Coast was doctor or lawyer. And I would say of the two, lawyer has a brighter future. <laughs> really? I'd love to hear you say more about that because that is that, that would not be my assumption. Oh, because AI medicine is, is growing by leaps and bounds. And, and AI legal is too, right? Yeah, you're probably right now that I think about it. But also, all the AI companies are getting sued. <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be a war of yeah. <laughs> legal attrition. It's going to continue to be health problems, and there's going to continue to be a litigious society. So <laughs> there's a core element on both that will remain, right? <laughs> You've got a love of music. And when you first opened the conversation, you were talking about your love of cooking. Yeah. And so I was wondering if you would suggest some recipe we should all at least consider and a piece of music or a few pieces of music we should listen to while cooking this new recipe. Well, this is just happens to be in the front of my mind because I made it, but I would highly recommend the very simple Thai green curry recipe from Hot Thai Kitchen on YouTube. It's a great channel, especially if you're lucky enough to live in a city that has an Asian market. You kind of need it to get some of the ingredients. Don't use the uh, the Asian section of your local Safeway or Ralph's. It's terrible. So so I guess first, 
watch some of the other videos that talk about the ingredients and then do that recipe. It's a great recipe. What was the second one? It was, oh, music. Yeah, what music should we listen to while we're making our Thai? Thai curry. Uh-huh. Well, the band Dengue Fever would be good, although it's not strictly Thai. It's Cambodian, but it's Southeast Asian and they're fun. But the specific song I would recommend is called Give Me Back My Man. And it's by the B-52s. And it was on their second album, Weird Planet. And that song kicks ass. I would definitely listen to that song. Love it. It's about... I love it. Yeah. Give me back my man. Boyfriend was eaten by a shark or something. And she's asking the seagulls to retrieve his body or something like that and offering them fish. That's my interpretation anyway. It's probably not correct, but great song. We should grab the lyrics and run it into some (laughs) generative system. Yeah. And see what it comes back with. Some Dolly will head us... I have one other song. That's one song that my band just recently started working on. So it's in the front of my mind. Another one that we've started working on is a childhood favorite of mine that nobody knows. I'll give you two of those, two childhood favorites. One is the song Long Lankin, L-A-N-K-I-N, by the band Steel Eye Span from their album Commoner's Crown. We're working on that, and it's a great song. And the other one is Little Neutrino by the band Klaatu which is also a really fun song. I love it. I'm curious on the puzzle generating side, if I'm counting this correctly, I think I see 41 printable puzzles on your site. And am I correct based on what you've shared so far, you created the generator for all of those? I would say for 98% of them, I created the generator. I think in total, there's about 52 puzzles on the site, but some of them are buried under submenus. Okay. So I would say 52 varieties, but a lot of those are Sudoku variations that I added in 2020. At that time, I've been through several generations of Sudoku Generator, and I made a new one in 2020 that does mix and match techniques. So it's it's literally capable of doing millions of Sudoku styles variations by combining, say, killer with adjacent, that kind of thing. And so um, sandwich, skyscraper, etc. it supports about 20 different variations that and they can all be mixed and matched. So that creates kind of a false sense of abundance whenever you use combinatorics like that, because there's a sameness to the output. So it's an impressive number, but it's also dope. I've written most of the generators. There were a couple early on that I borrowed a generator, gave credit, and then over time I switched to my own. Cool. As somebody who's only written to myself, 52 sounds alike a lot. Which one of these excites you the most and or was most challenging to create? Probably the Slitherlink generator. Just because that the spatial reasoning puzzles involved a different type of thinking in general. And I have a general purpose Slitherlink generator that's capable of generating several variants that I consider all to be types of Slitherlink, although uh, many people think of them as different puzzles. So it also does Mazu. It does Cow and Cactus, also called Corral Puzzles. And it does Area 51, which was an invention of, of Dave Miller. And who constructs them by hand? So that was a challenging one, especially, I think I initially wrote it in processing and it was kind of slow. And, I, and then I ended up going back to C for that one. I don't usually write my constructors in C, but if, that, but if I'm having performance issues, I will. You're right. I've done a lot of constructors and I've also been preparing very slowly a book on puzzle construction in Python. That's fantastic. Because, yeah, there's really not 
enough information out there for new constructors. There's a lot of information. You know, if you Google it, there's a lot of people offering puzzle construction code. They're often computer science students, and it's usually not particularly well-developed, and it's often brute-forced. And it's very easy to make a brute-force solver for puzzles, but you don't actually want to use that for puzzles that are intended for human consumption. And so there's a lot of issues that come into play when you're making puzzles for human consumption that are not part of the general computer science problem of how can I solve this puzzle as quickly as possible? Or how can I construct this puzzle? Or how can I construct every possible version of this puzzle? That kind of thing. It's a different problem. Where's the donation link for the book that you're writing? It's got to be somewhere. No, <laughs> there isn't. Let's get a Kickstarter oh, oh, going. Oh, well, let us know when it's up. That's a really good idea. Maybe if I did a Kickstarter, I could retire from my day job and just work on the book. I would love that. I would love that. But And I've had several different thoughts about how I might do this because I don't know if a single book is necessarily the best model. It might be better to do something more akin to a blog or do something on Medium where it's essentially a series of monographs that eventually get assembled into a book. And then I monetize each chapter, essentially. And then eventually the book is basically a collection of all those. That would probably be more effective and also more in line with the way I like to work. But I have a lot to say about puzzle construction for sure. And also specifically the different styles of constructors, uh, human style logic versus, I um, have air quotes around that, versus brute force and off-the-shelf solvers like SAP solvers. And I've done, I've done all of that stuff and done a lot of analysis of which are better in which situations. I often have puzzle construction systems that use both. So you might use a quick one to just, just to determine that a puzzle is valid and then a slower one, more subtle one to determine the d difficulty of the puzzle, that kind of thing. And yeah, I have a lot to say. And also I've been fascinated by random number generation and the molding of random numbers to create desirable outcomes for a very long time. And that's a big part of puzzle construction for sure. We got my son the first million digits of pie book for Christmas. He opened it and his face went ballistic. He was so excited. <laughs> so when you were sharing your interest in random numbers, I was yeah, like, oh. That's basically uh, a, a book with a giant random number in it. And yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I hope he reads Contact by Carl Sagan because there's a lovely thematic element running through the book about the digits of pi. And it ends on a pattern found in the digits of pi that was inserted by the aliens. Ah. Yeah. Uh, sorry, spoiler alert for those of you who didn't read the book. And it's not in the movie, by the way. It's only in the book. So you got to read the book. Got to read the book. Yeah. Got it. I, have you heard this thing, YouTube? <laughs> we yeah. don't read books anymore. <laughs> well, I watch a lot of YouTube. Well, Jim, uh, to echo what uh, Joseph said, this has been a delight. Really appreciate you being so open, sharing your time with us and your journey. And, and it's just awesome. So thank you. It was a truly a pleasure. And uh, anytime you want to uh, get together, you're going to be happy. Excellent. And if you're in town, let's get a beer. Okay, we will do. Thank you.